I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Italy, always on the vino, always on the spree, eight army scroungers and their tanks, we live in Rome among the Yanks, we are the D-Day Dodgers, way out in Italy. All right, thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have another very interesting little story about the history of warfare. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to go over some quick housekeeping. I want to say thank you to uh, all of our listeners out there, everybody that's been sticking with us as we get through some of the uh, slogging that's been going on with COVID and the summer season here in Maine. Definitely give a listen to the interview I did with author, historian, Matthew Parker. I was able to talk to him about his book on Monte Cassino that I used for the main uh, source for this episode. So definitely give that a listen to. Uh, also, don't forget to check us out on the social media accounts, both on Instagram, Facebook, and now on Twitter. We are also on Patreon. If you feel like you want some extra content, you also want to help support the show. All the money that goes from this goes to supporting the show in terms of uh, research materials, hosting fees, artwork, uh, promotion. Just basically, it is the backbone of the show. So if you want to support on Patreon, just go there and choose which field you want to take on, which or which uh, patron level you want to be. There's a $1, a $5, and a $10, and each one comes with slightly different perks and benefits. So check that out. And with that in mind, I want to thank uh, all of the newest Patreon patrons, uh, patron producers. That would be Vic Austin, Hugh Simpson, David Arnsman, and Jennifer Connell. Thank you guys so much. You, uh, you really do make the show keep going, and you really, uh, your support is very much appreciated by me. It means the world to me when I see uh, people are willing to throw a couple of shekels my way just to try and build this and and keep things moving. All right, so with that in mind, all the housekeeping is done other than a quick note. You might hear honking, beeping, engines revving, people cheering. We live right next to Bath Ironworks, which is in the midst of a strike, and the strikers are out there, and they're pretty loud. So I'm going to do my best to mitigate some of that noise, but if I can't, just uh, bear with me. So... That's that. Enough of the housekeeping. Let's get stuck in. This time on Cauldron, let's go back to the frigid rain and icy peaks of the southern Apennine Mountains. The late winter in the Leary Valley, waterlogged and deadly, bristling with the guns and traps of a dug-in and ready Wehrmacht. To 1944 a year when the Grand Alliance was shaky at best. Stalin was demanding that the Western powers spill blood at the same level as he so that his armies could finally catch their breath. 
to a time when the Americans were still trying to figure out how best to use their incredible strength and regularly failing, to a time when the British relied on their colonial forces for much of the heavy lifting, and those colonial fighters rarely failed, to a place where hundreds of years of art, culture, and religious thought resided in one of the world's most elegant and beautiful monasteries. Perched over the land like humanity had placed all his finest things on a grand pedestal in the hopes it would remain unharmed forever. The monastery was doomed from the beginning of the battle. Let's go back to what historian Matthew Parker has called, quote, the hardest fought battle of World War II, end quote. Let's go back to January, May 1944 and the Battle of Monte Cassino. War to this point had seen the Allies eventually successful in North Africa against Rommel and the Africa Corps. Uh, by late 1943, the Allies had uh, been very successful in Sicily over the summer and had eventually gotten their way to the southern tip of Italy. They had crossed, the Eighth Army had crossed over to the southern tip of the boot, and Mark Clark and the American Fifth Army had landed at Salerno. The hope was that by October of 1943, the whole Allied force would find itself in Rome and Italy would be under Allied control. This is one of those absurdly optimistic goals, but, uh, but generals have to have goals. So uh, definitely it was unlikely that that was going to be the case, but, uh, but it was important that the Allies have an idea of wh what they were hoping to achieve and what timeline they were working with. Again, this was uh, absurdly optimistic. Commander-in-Chief for CNC of the region was Harold Alexander, and he wanted to move up Italy on two different fronts. So he had the 8th Army under uh, Montgomery, who would eventually get replaced because he would have to go to uh, back to England or back to London. Uh, Montgomery would be given the control of the D-Day landing. So, But at the time that uh, Monte Cassino begins, Montgomery is the commander of the British 8th Army, and he is going along the Adriatic coast or the eastern portion of the Italian boot, and U.S. General uh, Mark Clark, who was in control of the U.S. 5th Army, would work up the west coast of Italy, and he would be uh, based out of Naples and work his way up north of the uh, landing sites at Salerno, hoping to eventually reach Rome. One of the things to keep in mind about Italy, as far as uh, attacking it goes or invading, maybe the... Uh, you, you know, one, arguably one of the greatest tactical minds of all time was Napoleon, and he's supposed to have said uh, that, quote, Italy is a boot, it must be entered from the top, end quote. He definitely would have said not to bother trying to invade and work your way up the Italian boot. Uh, and there's probably a number of reasons here. Uh, there's the proximity of the capital of Rome to the northern portion of the country. There's also, uh, and we'll get into the terrain, but the terrain itself just does not lend itself very well to trying to work your way up the boot. Uh, no greater general, uh, in my mind, is out there than Belisarius. He's one of those most, uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant tactician, strategist, 
and criminally undercovered generals from history. He is the last person to have taken Rome from the south, and that was in 536 A.D., uh, before the Allies eventually would do so. And just keep in mind, there is a reason that Hannibal, maybe the greatest uh, military mind of all time, was uh, more willing to invade across the Alps with his elephants and his African troops than he was to try and put together a fleet. And, you know, obviously there are a multiplicity of reasons why he went from the north. But again, Hannibal, just to reinforce the idea, Hannibal himself deemed it a better option for his army to invade from the north across a thousand mile march and mountains of the Alps. So it's uh, it was a questionable move from the very beginning. But the Allies really didn't have much of a choice. They had to, uh, they had to do something. Their operation for Normandy crossing the Channel was in kind of in the early phases of, of being planned. And then by the time Monte Cassino happens, it's a done deal. They're going to be doing it, uh, and Monte Cassino takes on the role of sideshow from from the uh, for the basically for the European theater. Mark Clark and his Fifth Army, the U.S. Army was very slow moving in trying to work its way up the uh, Italian coast from Salerno. Uh, this is based on, or this is because of a number of different things. First off, the terrain is very rough. Uh, the weather was not working with the Allies. And then you also have the Germans putting up a very, very dogged defense. They are building defensive lines, and then they're doing this uh, this skillful dance where their fighting withdrawals are being uh, put on each time. So the Americans get invested, they get stuck in, they get dug in, they, they're really trying to hold a position or take a position, and they put up this huge fight with the Germans. The Germans are uh, really selling it. They're, they're making it feel like this is the last time that it's going to happen. The uh, Americans think that they're finally making some ground. Then the next day, the the Americans push on and the Germans are gone uh, and they've just gone to the next hill or the next position where they've set up another line of defense. And keep in mind, the Americans at this point in time are fairly untested. They've, uh, you know, they've had some North African experience and then they had the uh, short summer campaign through Sicily. N you know, no real experience on European uh, land, you know, fighting a massive German army outside of uh, a depleted, weakened, uh, very poorly uh, supplied Africa Corps at the very end, and then, again, a kind of isolated German army in Sicily that was relying heavily on allies to, uh, that, that really never <laughs> did much. Um, so they're, they're having a hard time moving forward. The British on the Adriatic under Monty, much better progress, but uh, with the coming of winter, they also start to slow down. And so by the time that winter rolls around, you have both of the Allied armies pretty much stopped in front of what's known as the Gustav Line. We'll get to that. Uh, the Gustav Line is one of the most interesting defensive positions, if not the most interesting and impenetrable defensive positions of the war. Uh, and we'll break it down in a minute. But the Allies are essentially in a position where they have a, a limited number of routes that they can actually take to get to Rome. You know, contrary to the whole Rome, all the roads leading to Rome, in this particular instance, there are only a few that would allow them to uh, deploy their massive superiority in men and material uh, and move quickly. So there's the five, six, and seven. These are the five, 
five, six, and seven are the three routes that they're able to, or potentially able to use to make their way to Rome. The fifth, which goes across the spine of the peninsula, um, peninsula's mountain range, the Apennines, uh, was pretty much not decided that it wouldn't work because of the winter. And then the Highway 7, or Route 7, which is the old Roman Appian Way, was a coastal route. And that would work, but again, the, the winter is kind of making things difficult. Finally, Highway 6, or Route 6, the Via Casalina, this cuts through the Leary Valley, and it's a uh, straight shot 80 miles from there to Rome. It was decided this is probably the one that they want to take, uh, or some kind of mixture of, of Route 6 and 7. Uh, in it, As they keep planning this, it becomes realized that they're not only going to have to cut through the Gustav line, but that along Route 6, the mass of Monte Cassino looms over the entire Leary Valley, and it has this incredible view of the country in every direction below. Uh, it would, if used by the Germans, give them a almost unimpeded view of everything that the Allies would be doing to launch this massive attack north towards Rome. Uh, the Allies would also have to cross a number of rivers and then scale a bunch of mountains uh, and take on these heavily fortified hills. The valleys around the Leary Valley area were being flooded not only by nature but by the Germans in some cases. And then the Germans would have the ability and time to create as uh, strong a defensive position as they possibly could. In fact, like I said earlier, the Gustav Line becomes probably the most brilliantly devised European theater uh, defensive position. It's uh, It really was brilliant in the way that they did it, and just the combination of booby traps, mines, artillery, attack positions, bunkers, everything about it, it just it's a tough nut to crack. And then again, smack in the center of this line is this monastery, and it was believed that uh, that this would form the nerve center of the German... Uh, defenses, but in actuality, uh, the Axis forces under German Marshal Kesselring left the monastery unoccupied, uh, and in a, a very strange instance for a brilliant uh, German, you know, field marshal, he's going to forsake this excellent, excellent position as a show of good faith that uh, both to the Vatican and the allies that, and he let them know ahead of time. He told, uh, he made it clear to the Vatican and the allies that he was not going to garrison the monastery. Uh, but for obvious reasons, it was hard to swallow. It was hard to believe that such an excellent position wouldn't be taken advantage of. And in truth, the allies would eventually find out that uh, as much as they didn't physically occupy that location, the Germans did have defensive positions pretty much everywhere around it, right next to the base of the monastery. Um, they used it very well. Everything, you know, they devised a way of, of fortifying the position just shy of garrisoning the actual monastery. So that's the war up to that point. And you can tell one of the key things here to keep in mind is that as the uh, as the Germans and the Russians are 
bludgeoning each other to, to you know, pieces on the Eastern Front. There's real tension in 1943, 1944 between the Allies, uh, Allied leaders because Stalin is adamant that the Brits and the Americans are just biding their time and letting uh, Russian lives get chewed up and spit out by the Wehrmacht. Uh, he is very, very much in the position that, or of the position that the Allies are, the British and the American allies are allowing the two hated groups, the Soviets and the Nazis, to waste each other in the streets, basically kill each other, and that way they can come in at the end, swoop in, get all the glory, get all the land. Um, he is adamant that that ends. He wants that second front to open up. And if Italy has to be the one, then that's what it is. He doesn't care. He just wants it done. Um, and and we also see Churchill at this point is kind of antsy to get something done as well. He definitely doesn't want a uh, Normandy landing to happen before all of the buildup can get uh, get into place. Which is interesting because before, I believe it was George Marshall, I'm almost positive it was Marshall, who wanted to skip the whole Africa campaign. Um, Part of the American belief was that why are we going to North Africa to help defend the colonial possessions of the British Empire? Let's just land somewhere in France, whether it be Normandy or southern France or even the Atlantic coast. Uh, Let's start the war in Europe and just work our way to uh, Berlin. Churchill wisely convinces uh, FDR and and, uh, some of the Americans to uh, argue against this, both to save Cairo, um, which they needed to keep, they needed to maintain their connection with India um, via the Suez. So it was important to hold those African colonial possessions. Uh, It was also a important blooding session for the Americans. Um, at, in North Africa, you see the, the fiasco at Kasserine Pass, and then you see the Americans rebound and learn how to fight, learn how to uh, work with, with combined arms, learn how to take care of logistical situations and, and really begin to fight like a modern army. Without that, uh, and, and here's the, the key, is that they're learning in North Africa and Sicily against smaller German armies, uh, thousands of miles from their main uh, homeland, and with, you know, conjunction with Italian allied forces that are just, you know, withering away um, as they're fighting. They're just becoming almost laughable in some cases. So they're not fighting the cream of the crop, and they're not... on the very verge of of reaching German territory where the Germans will fight to the last man. So it it seems like the invasion of North Africa and uh, Sicily and then eventually Italy is actually very helpful in in kind of blooding the Americans and getting them used to how modern warfare is fought. Italy south of Rome is incredibly difficult terrain for men and armies to move in because you have these high mountains that are bisected by fast-moving rivers. And just in general, um, it's very difficult to move uh, large groups of material and men around in these areas. Uh, You see the Romans cutting these massive roads that last for a thousand years plus, 
they did that because they had a hard time moving their armies quickly, and they came up with a solution. Um, one of the quotes that I got from Matthew Parker's book that I thought really summed it up well is, uh, General Alexander says in his, uh, in his memoir, quote, the seemingly unending succession of mountain ranges, ravines, and rivers of the Italian terrain demanded the soldierly qualities of fighting valor and endurance in a measure unsurpassed in any other theater of war, end quote. Now, whether or not you agree with that, whether or not you think that's an exaggeration, I'm sure some people out there hearing that would say uh, there are plenty of people in the Eastern Front who would disagree or in the Pacific who might disagree. It doesn't negate the fact that Italy was an incredibly difficult part of the European theater for green soldiers to figure out how to fight. And even veteran soldiers, like we'll see in a little while, men from the German army who had seen fighting on the Eastern Front found Italy to be incredibly difficult and Monte Cassino itself to be an extremely violent and costly battle. In particular, around Monte Cassino, to either side of the Leary Valley, again, the Leary Valley being one of those main routes to Rome that the Allies had chosen to take. Uh, in the Leary Valley, you have the Monte Cassino monastery on this, this giant pedestal in the middle overlooking everything. On either side of the valley are these craggy, roadless mountains of the Aranucci uh, Range, which is running from the Leary Valley to the coast, so all the 20 miles from Leary Valley to the coastline, which is right across the American path. And then you also have the, uh, right behind the monastery, you have this overlooking and kind of menacing, protecting uh, mountain range of the Abruzzis, which are even more craggy, higher, more, you know, in, almost impossible to maneuver around. And they protect the uh, the rear and, and right-hand side of the monastery from the Allies, keeping the ability for them to, to utilize any kind of flanking maneuvers or using armor as, uh, as, a, as a large force on that from really playing much of a role at all in the battles that follow. Eventually they do um, become more important and, and armor becomes a huge portion of how the battle is won. But in the first couple of uh, forays into the Monte Cassino area, these mountain ranges play a, a massive role in allowing the Germans to defend against a much larger army for quite a bit of time. And they defended this area simply uh, masterfully. Uh, the area around Casino is, is tailor-made for defensive warfare. Uh, it provides the Germans with, with massive, natural, defendable positions, and they're able to build enough time. Again, remember, we talked about a little while ago the uh, delaying attacks and the with, uh, the withdraw fighting withdrawals that the Germans were doing um, against the Americans. Well, that was all to build time so that the Gustav line could be built up and perfected. And the Germans do an incredible job of that. Uh, they are able to accurately hone in their artillery and sight in their artillery and mortars so that every inch of this area is covered by a couple of guns. Um, they're able to, basically, they uh, in a series of interlocking lines, they're running across Italy um, from its narrowest, which is from Gaeta to Ortono, uh, and they're connecting all these rivers, like the Rapido, the Liri, and the Gargliano, which will all play a role in the battle to come. 
Uh, they're also connecting marshes and mountaintops in in these uh, series of, of just brilliantly tricky traps and blinds and fields of fire and kill zones uh, so that any tr- anywhere you tried to move north in Italy, um, the Gustav line was going to block it and going to keep any large groups of men and especially armor and trucks from getting anywhere. Uh, because the Germans were also, they were clearing buildings, they were getting rid of vegetation, again, to make those fields of fire as, as clean as possible. Um, and it also allowed German artillery to really pre-target uh, as much as possible. And they, the Germans were also really adept at uh, building bunkers. And what they were doing is they would find caves in the mountains or little dugouts, and they would bring in steel girders and, and perf- really perfect what nature started by creating these uh, ridouts and, and bastions in the mountains, stockpiling them with ammo and food and, and munitions and all sorts of stuff so that if they came to it, you could have 20 or 30 guys essentially living in these sp- uh, spots for months on end, um, or that was the hope that they would be able to do that. So every inch of, of this whole area uh, of the Gustav line was designed to try and make the Allies pay um, for every step forward. So minefields, barbed wire, blown dams and flooded valleys, booby traps, strong points, um, everything is on this line, and it's all designed to wreak havoc on the Allies, kill and wound and destroy as many uh, of the Allied soldiers as possible, and allow for quick Counterattacks. That's one of the things that is most striking as you read about Monte Cassino is how fast the Germans were able to recognize where the battle was going poorly for them and then counterstrike and bring in reinforcements to uh, to either hold a position or to strike a, a hard enough blow just to stop the Allied momentum. And then they would withdraw, and the Allies might have won the ground or won the the peak or whatever it was that they're fighting over, but because the Gustav line is so, um, it's so uh, just detailed and so uh, you know layered that the Allies couldn't really move much farther, and the Germans were able to kind of recover, recoup, and eventually would put those men back in the firing line, but. The, the ability for the Germans to counter-strike and counter-attack is just unbelievable in this whole battle. And actually, throughout the whole war, they become, uh, I think I would argue that the Germans are the most effective counter-attackers in the war. Um, one of the things that really affects not just the physical and the, the bottle, uh, you know, the bodies of the Allied soldiers are the, the minds. It all, they, they also affect the, the psychology, the morale of the Allied soldiers as they're trying to walk their way north. And uh, the mines that the Germans used, they, they, they use 25,000 plus. So as, maybe as many as 50,000 mines are all along this Gustav line. Um, and there are two different major German varieties. You've got the S-42, the Schumine, which is a hair-trigger device. It's, uh, it typically will take off a foot or a leg. And um, it's anti-personnel, um, so it's going to really affect the, the guy right there. Obviously, it definitely still has a blast radius, and you know parts of that person and parts of the, the mine itself will blast away and, and strike people. Um, but the, the much more brutal and the more hated 
of the two mines utilized by the Germans is the S mine, which is triggered by stepping on it, and then a the mine will pop up into the air about two feet, and then it blows up. And these little these tricky little bastards basically they blow up at groin height, and are known both to the Allies and the British as as you know just terrible terrible horrible horrible little weapons that wound shoots you know a bunch of uh, uh, shrapnel all over the place. Uh, the Americans called them bouncing Bettys pretty famously, and the British would call them debolickers, referring to the regularity with which the mines would uh, take away gentlemen's, uh, you know, testicles. Um, and the reason that they're particularly hard to find and deactivate is because these mines are, are encased in wood. Uh, and because you're using a metal detector to typically find mines, uh, these would would not necessarily get popped by a metal detector. All of it really comes down to, and and what we'll see throughout this episode, is that the Battle of Monte Cassino is really the culmination of what was learned by both armies in the Great War. And specifically, it's the uh, peak of defensive warfare as envisioned by a mind like uh, Ludendorff and the Germans take his doctrine, his understanding of of trench warfare and defensive warfare, and put it to um, the ac- actual, you know, the pinnacle. It's at it's at its finest, cutting edge right here, and uh, and it would have made Ludendorff proud. The idea of having all these pre-sighted kill zones and uh, and the uh, the ready to roll counter strike counter attack hidden positions and bunkers and just everything about it screams World War One. And we'll see again and again people that were fighting at Monte Cassino referencing battles from World War One or how similar it was to them. A lot of officers that fought in the First World War would equate Monte Cassino to uh, much of what they saw and what they witnessed. And on top of the defensive aspects and the physical um, defensive lines created, the Gustav line was drilled into the soldiers as being a must win. It must be held. Uh, Hitler himself called for a Stalingrad-like uh, holding position, uh, you know, a, a death to every man. They have to die at their post because, um, because at, again, at this point, the war is is moving inexorably towards its outcome with the Allies on top. It's not necessarily a sure bet at the moment, but it seems like everybody kind of has an idea of how this is going to go. Hitler himself seems to have an understanding that the uh, Nazis aren't going to come out as winners. And so at the Gustav line, he wants uh, wants his men to die at their positions, die holding every ground, every inch— um, and he says, quote, and then again, this is in Parker's book. He says, quote, within the next few days, the battle for Rome will begin. It will be decisive for the defense of central Italy and for the fate of the 10th army. All officers and men must be penetrated by a fanatical will to end this battle victoriously and never to relax until the last enemy soldier has been destroyed. The battle must be fought in a spirit of holy hatred for an enemy who is conducting a pitiless war of extermination against the German people. 
The fight must be hard and merciless, not only against the enemy, but against all officers and units who fail in this decisive hour, end quote. Part of why the Gustav line ends up being such a brilliant defensive position is the man behind much of it is German uh, Major General Friedelein von Sanger und Edelein. Um, Kesselring had put him in charge, and he was given the job of stopping the bleeding in Italy uh, and make the Gustav line as formidable as possible. He was very good at it. Uh, He did it very well. Uh, he's not what you would imagine as a normal uh, uh, Nazi general, although his name definitely qualifies as that. But uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford. Uh, he was brilliant as far as uh, as, as an intellectual. Um, he was an anti-Nazi, and he was devoutly Catholic. Uh, he even visited the monastery um on top of Monte Cassino before the war. So he'd, he'd done a, a great deal of traveling to different Benedictine monasteries in his life. Uh, he'd seen the fall of France and during the early portion of the war, and he, was, he also served on the Eastern Front. Uh, again, the echo of, of the Eastern Front is kind of riddled throughout Monte Cassino, as is the First World War. Um, he'd seen fighting in the battle to free the encircled Field Marshal Paulus at Stalingrad, and his skill in Italy would eventually kill thousands of Allied soldiers. And uh, I think that he he's one of those rare, likable, I mean, if you can say it, but rare, likable Nazi generals. Uh, he, he knew his stuff, and he doesn't seem to have been caught up in the, um, the, 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 Nazi creed, if you will. Um, multiple times in his writing, he he kind of assimilates or he draws a connection between casino and fighting that he saw in the First World War. He says at one point, quote, I noticed how the entire width of Casino Valley was filled with uninterrupted harassing fire. This continued day and night with, ev- with very heavy expenditure of ammunition. In contrast to the wide-ranging mobile battle in Russia, the conflict here resembled the static fighting of the First World War, end quote. So again, you, you get that echo of the First World War. As the casino battle is coming to a head, as, as things are moving into position, both sides are really figuring out where they stand on this, uh, it becomes clearer and clearer to the rest of the world that something is about to happen uh, in the Leary Valley. And we know that the Allies um, are in a tough position. Even though Hitler is giving his forces the stand and die, fight and die speech, um, which would tell us that there is a serious concern on the German side as to whether or not they can win, uh, the Allies aren't much better off at this point in the war, or at least in terms of the Italian peninsula. They have kind of a foggy objective. Uh, It's essentially to hold down German units. Uh, After they were able to take Naples and the Foggia airfields, their objectives after that were pretty uh, loose, and really it just boils down to tie up Germans as much as you can so that the landings in Normandy and elsewhere in Europe 
uh, are, you know, there, there are less Germans to go around and defend those positions once the uh, landings start to happen. Uh, that's never a good thing when you have loose objectives. Uh, so what it eventually comes down to is um, a decision made by the Allies to uh, figure their, their proverbial shit out and, uh, and start a battle. One of the reasons that they have to is because um, Winston Churchill pushes for this Operation Shingle, which is a landing at Anzio. Uh, Anzio is a city further up the Italian boot, basically in between the Leary Valley and Casino. His thinking is, we'll land an army behind the Gustav line, and then the two forces, the Anzio force and then the, uh, the, the force in front of the Gustav line can link up and roll that defensive line right up. Of course, it's uh, dangerous. It's also very Churchillian to propose a landing of an army on contested soil. It seems to be kind of his thing. Um, and the Anzio landing gets pushed forward because the Allied High Command and FDR has to, has to try and keep Churchill happy. They have to give him something every now and then. Um, Anzio is one of those things that he's able to win um, or, you know, rest from the Allied High Command. Uh, it's planned for the end of January. So Mark Clark and the Fifth Army have to really start to push and break through as soon as possible so that way the uh, the landings at Anzio don't turn into an Italian form of Gallipoli. That's a great fear on the British side is that they're going to start landing at Anzio and then they're going to get pushed right back into the sea unless the Fifth Army and the Eighth Army can maybe put on some pressure at Gustav and stop the Germans from being able to quickly reinforce uh, the attacked position at Anzio. So right at, off the bat, the Battle of Monte Cassino is not being held for any specific uh, goal in mind. It's not, it's not being fought with a clear strategic and tactical goal. It's being fought simply so that a as-of-yet un, uh, unembarked-upon landing has a little less pressure on it. Um, so we'll see how that actually works out in the, uh, in the coming battle. All right, before we dive into the first battle of Monte Cassino, I want to talk a little bit about the monastery itself, this, uh, this iconic moment in the history of war and in the history of World War II specifically. Um, it comes to a head with the destruction of the monastery, but why is the monastery important? Uh, in Matthew Parker's book, there's a great quote, and it goes, quote, At the center of this scene was the monastery itself, perched dramatically a thousand feet above the town, gleaming white in the sun, immense, ancient, beautiful, brooding, an enigma. End quote. Um, that is a, uh, that's taken from the writings of a, of a man who was at the Battle of Monte Cassino, um, and it's in Matt's book, but uh, it really gives you an idea of, of how bizarre it must have been to to be fighting a battle in modern war and have this weird, ancient Catholic monastery just kind of looming over the whole thing. Uh, it was a massive complex of courtyards and outbuildings surrounded by this huge 20-foot-thick wall uh, cut out from the rock 
uh, and at the tip of a mountain spur, some 500 meters almost vertically above the surrounding valley, giving it this this incredible, unobstructed view of, of every approach, every valley, um, kind of this God's eye view of, of the area surrounding Casino Town for miles around. Uh, out in front of it were the natural moats of the Rapido and Gagliano rivers. So both of these are fast-moving. They're steep-banked rivers. They're very easily defended, super hard to cross. Um, even at the best of times, in without fighting or being shot out, these these rivers would prove fairly difficult for someone to just try and get across. And then added to that, when we start to fight the second, third, and fourth battles, you start to see the flooding of spring taking a toll in the area and making especially the Gagliano incredibly difficult to, if not impossible, cross. Um, the monastery on top of, or at Monte Cassino, is one of Christianity's most sacred buildings. It's one of the Catholic Church's most uh, holy uh, buildings. It's the home of the Benedictine order, and they would go, they're the ones that would go and lay the foundation of monastic groups throughout the entire Catholic world. Uh, in the 17th century, you have it turned into this Baroque masterpiece type structure where it's, it's full of all the, um, the hallmarks of Baroque uh, style and, and architecture. And it becomes a center of European art by the 18th century. Uh, it, it, was, it was an Italian national property but was home to the world's greatest writers from antiquity. So you've got, uh, in the library at the monastery, you've got Tacitus, you've got Cicero, Horace, Virgil, Ovid, and among them and, and other artists, you have some of the paintings by Titian, uh, Goya, and, and just uh, a litany of other famous, uh, famous artists. Um, it was the direct orders from Field Marshal Kesselring to not only to not only not fortify the monastery um, and to remain out of it as or stay out of it as much as possible. Obviously, that doesn't mean they didn't use the position for observation um, or, or spotting for artillery and mortar positions, but they did not occupy it like they could have. Um, however, they also did have mortar positions at the uh, very, in, you know, in the very shadow of the monastery, at the base of the monastery walls. So again, we talked about it at the top. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily occupied, but it wasn't also uh, completely bereft of German uh, weapons and men. Uh, but the monastery is incredibly important in the Catholic Church. It's incredibly important to Italian culture and even world heritage and culture. Um, and to, you know, to that end, Kesselring kept it as empty of, of Wehrmacht men as possible. He also has, um, or uh, some of the Germans involved, a Lieutenant Colonel Schlegel, took an active role in going about and evacuating much of the art and the paintings and literature and a lot of the uh, movable culture that was within the monastery was actually moved by the uh, by a couple of German officers acting totally on their own. Um, they were able to convince their you know higher ups that this is something that had to be done. Uh, they eventually convinced convince the abbot and he helps them and the peasant or, you know the, the townsfolk and the monks of the monastery start building uh you know little boxes they build art uh 
kind of like uh, crates for the paintings. They wrap things up in carpets. They do pretty much everything they can so that by the time of the destruction of the uh, monastery, most, if not all, of the movable culture, the movable artwork and whatnot of the uh, of the monastery was was evacuated to the Vatican. Um, so that's an interesting side story that uh, should, if you get a chance, dive a little bit deeper and check that out because it's it's very um, it's very cool and you see a human side to uh, Nazis, which is I think important but uh, can be difficult and rare. Um, so definitely check that out. So the monastery is looming over this battle to be. And then we have, uh, in the first battle of Monte Cassino, you've got Lieutenant General Mark Clark, who is going to get a very bad rap for how he handles Monte Cassino. In fact, he's uh, kind of going to be considered one of, if not the worst general of World War II on the American side. Uh, His plan for the first battle is for the British to strike on a wide front and then a few days later have the U.S. forces uh, on the British right move in, and then there the Americans are going to move in with con- the, um, in connection with the French Expeditionary Corps under General Juan, who uh, is at the extreme end of this haymaker striking towards the hinge point of Casino itself. So you've got, if you imagine a line, you've got the British on the left, the Americans in the center, and then the French Expeditionary Corps on the far right. Um, And it's hoped that by moving on such a wide front and attacking everywhere at once, the Germans won't be able to really defend themselves. They'll have to Uh, thin their line out and move a bunch of different places. Clark and most of the others saw really little chance of success against the Gustav line, uh, but it was just, you know, it comes down to it. They just had to do something, which again is never a good reason to attack. Uh, He anticipated that the attack to draw in German reserves might be helpful uh, and pull forces from Rome and the uh, potential landing sites uh, north of, of the Gustav Line at Anzio. So it definitely serves a purpose if that's what happens, but uh, Mark Clark definitely wasn't 100% sure that that was what the end result was going to be. It was also believed that the Germans would continue uh, a fighting retreat past Rome. So even if they uh, left the Gustav Line, Clark and the Allies feared that they were just going to be fighting with the Germans the whole way, that they, the Germans were going to do that, that fighting withdrawal that they had done earlier on in the campaign. The British 10th Corps, uh, the 56th Infantry Division and 5th Infantry Division, attacked on January 17th, hitting the Gargliano River near the coast on a 20-mile front. Now, remember that Gargliano River, extremely hard to cross, really fast-flowing, steep banks, fairly wide in places, Uh, easy, easy for Germans to defend. There was enough early success in this attack that the German position was uh, very weak, and it was weak enough that there was, you know, it was was enough friction caused at that uh, British attack point that General von Sanger und Ederlein, the the German man behind the Gustav line, um, he requested help from Kesselring. Kesselring is really not... Uh, too keen to do it, but he does exactly what was uh, was one of the 
hoped for objectives of the battle where he pulls a couple of units from the defense of Rome. Of course, the Allied plan didn't change at all. It was made uh, ahead of time, and the if the Brits had had reinforcements to exploit their gains at this early stage in the battle, there's possible, uh, there's a possibility that a breakthrough could have happened uh, and could have been in the offing. But it's it's one of the um, kind of through lines, one of the storylines of the whole Monte Cassino story, that it's just terror. It's one after an- another instance of terrible timing on the part of the Allies. They just can't seem to get out of their own way. Uh, they can't seem to time things properly. Uh, it's much like a, a chef who doesn't know what he's doing. And the the side dishes come out before the appetizer. The entree comes out before the, uh, you know, without any sides. And the, the dessert comes out when the soup is out. It's just terrible timing. Um, and the allies fall prey to that timing issue time and time again. So the British are seeing some success, but they're incapable of making anything out of it. Um, one of the benefits, though, is, is, again, the Germans pull the 29th and the 90th Panzer Grenadier Divisions from Rome, which will turn out to be a very important, valuable part of this whole battle. Parker says, quote, Although the British commanders were disappointed in the light of the momentous events taking place in the Leary Valley to their right from 20 January onward, it was a considerable achievement. The small bridgehead would be of vital importance later, and crucially, German reserves that could have destroyed the landings at Anzio had been drawn into the Gustav Line from 18th January onward, thus achieving one of the key objectives of the wider army attack before the main thrust into the Leary Valley even started. In this first phase of the Battle of Monte Cassino, the British suffer some 4,000-plus casualties along the Gustav Line. On sundown on the 20th, the main assault by the U.S. 36th Division hits the Rapido River. Uh, minefields and enemy defenses and a just a general lack of training for oppos- opposed river crossings and a total lack of proper planning combined with a lightning-fast and deadly efficient German counterattack. There it is again, one of those German, those patented German counterattacks that just strike out of nowhere push the Americans back across the river by morning on the 21st. This is a terrible situation that the Americans found themselves in. Uh, They make it across the river initially, uh, but they have to cross these minefields that the Germans have have placed really effectively. Uh, The the way that they were doing it is there would be like a a cloth line that men would follow. Uh, Eventually what happens is on the the next day, the, the Americans attack again, but in the night the Germans have crossed the river and moved the cloth lines so that the Americans are now walking through minefields that haven't been cleared. Um, And one of the key problems with this initial strike and uh, this initial movement across is that the Americans were unable to bring armor across. There's no, they weren't able to successfully bridge the river anywhere and armor didn't make it across. So when the infantry units are on the other side of the river, they are totally isolated and alone. And then all of a sudden, a couple of German tanks roll up and uh, the Americans were completely exposed and the German armor just, you know, basically just rid- rid- riddled the American side 
uh, with bullets and, and destroyed whatever small bridge hold or foothold that they had on the other side of the river. Again, sundown the 21st, U.S. regiment strike and try and make it across the, uh, the Rapido. They do make it across, but again, there are units that are just totally isolated and alone on the other side. Uh, all, are, all the units that are involved in this attack are forced to go back over the river or are totally eliminated. And by dawn, the 22nd, the 141st Infantry Regiment was completely decimated with only 40 men making it back alive. Uh, Rick Atkinson said, quote, Artillery and Nebel Warfare drum fire methodically searched both bridgeheads while machine guns open on every sound. GIs inched forward, feeling for trip wires and listening to German gun crews reload. To stand or even to kneel was to die, end quote. So you get a sense of the chaos of trying to find, first off, you've got to go from your your main position and find the river, you know, where you're crossing and find your, the, the men you're crossing with. Then in the dark of night, you've got to cross this river while being fired upon. And then once you get across, you've got to hope that somehow enough men make it across and then maybe a tank or two that if the Germans show up in force to try and push you back into the river, you won't have to uh, turn tail and, and run away. Um, if they do that and you are forced to evacuate now you've got to repeat that whole thing only in reverse so now you're crossing the river and you're trying to get back to your main position all well under fire all well under german artillery and mortar fire it's incredibly difficult and it's hard to to um you know you can't blame any of the men that would surrender once they're on the other side because the idea of trying to get back across is just daunting um heavy heavy casualties at this point in the battle are a clear indication that the Allies are very unprepared for what's going to happen at Monte Cassino in the following weeks and months. Uh, one bright spot was the, the French Expeditionary Corps under General Juan. Uh, they do fairly well, but the U.S. 36th Division took a staggering 2,100 casualties in the two days of its attacking. Um, that's, that's a huge amount for an army that, uh, is, is fairly young and fairly new to everything that's happening in Europe. Uh, the whole thing's such a fiasco for the U S that there's even, uh, a congressional inquiry into the management of the, uh, attack during the post-war, um, like a recap of what, what everyone did. So you've even got the government, uh, civilian, oversight trying to figure out how the hell this attack was allowed to go on. Um, the next phase of the overall first battle was the joint U.S.-French expeditionary attack on the, uh, the Rapido north of Casino, hoping to try and strike across and then come in from above and behind Monte Casino. So uh, again, there's, I believe it's the Abruzzi mountain range is just behind and just north of Monte Casino. Uh, so the hope was that they could get across into the mountains and then come down on Monte Cassino from behind and above. Uh, it's a discoordinated and discombobulated affair, and it's, uh, only some of the forces make it across the Rapido River. Uh, there's that heavy flooding that takes effect. The waterlogged terrain makes the use of army, armor extremely limited and, and very weak, um, so the U.S. 34th Division gets a foothold in the mountains, but isn't really able to do much more than that. The French on its right side did well initially against the formidable German 5th Mountain Division. 
Uh, the combined French-Moroccan force is able to bypass strong points, take Monte uh, Belvedere and Col Abate, uh, Col Abat, uh, two very important vantage points from which it's hoped that they can try and hone in some artillery on the Germans. Uh, General Juan believed that he was going to be able to make a breakthrough, uh, that it was not only possible, but within reach to win the battle right here. Yet again, a lack of planning and foresight leads to uh, there being no real handy reinforcements available and that the French momentum is killed as trying to resupply becomes uh, a grinding matter of men and donkeys being uh, picked off by Germans, uh, mortar and sniper fire through the, the trails to get to the, the men in the front positions. Uh, the key height of Monte Cifalco or Monte Cifalco uh, is a position that the Germans keep and are able to maintain, and it gives them this full view of the Allied flank and rear supply lines. Uh, it, the, the French Expeditionary Corps is not able to take it. Um, they're forced to halt, and in the process, they themselves suffer 2,500 casualties in a few days of fighting. Finally, the U.S. 34th is pulled up to the front in order to take the ridge line out to a place called Monastery Hill. Um, from here, it was thought that they could swoop down into the Leary Valley behind the Gustav line, turn the entire German position, uh, but in the wet, freezing weather, the Allied soldiers were sent to fight in the ravines and the craggy mountainsides, littered with boulders and cliffs and with no cover. And so they're fighting in these these mountains and craggy cliffs and all this stuff. And remember, what what happens when a bomb hits rock or a bullet hits rock, it doesn't necessarily, like, dive into the rock or get swallowed by it. It shatters the rock into pieces. Um, Ernie Pyle, the great war correspondent and one of the most familiar faces and familiar writers of the war, uh, writes this great little bit about wounds and shrapnel. It goes, uh, quote, Sometimes a bullet can go clear through a man and not hurt him. Bullets and fragments do crazy things. Our surgeons picked out more than 200 pieces of shrapnel from one man. There was hardly a square inch of him from head to toe that wasn't touched, yet none made a vital hit, and the man lived, end quote. And then... You have one guy that gets hit by one piece of shrapnel and it cuts his jugular vein. There's uh, just so many ways to die in these mountains, and part of it is just these little slivers and splinters of rock flying everywhere um, and, and being shot into the air by these massive uh, artillery bombardments and mortars and gunfire. Between the booby traps and German positions that had been months in the making, uh, they, the Americans really never had a shot at taking Monastery Hill. Uh, they really never had a shot at making much ground uh, in this par portion of the battle. They did make solid gains, and by February they had taken some small elevated objectives. By February 7th, the American infantry is just a mere 400 yards from the monastery. Uh, even you know, working their way up to the walls, but there's just incredible massive amounts of German machine gun fire and mortar fire that, uh, again, work their way into a German counterattack by elite German parachute regiments that are held outside of Monte Cassino, uh, and it just halts the Americans dead in their tracks. 
Um, by the 11th, the Americans were withdrawn from the front lines near Monastery Hill and Casino Town. So, again, I don't know if I explained this, but the mountains are right behind the monastery. Then you have the monastery. And then in front of the monastery, but below it, there's Castle Hill. Uh, and that has the old castle on it. And then below that, at like ground level with the, the rivers and all that, is Casino Town, where, um, you know, where the major population of con- Casino live. Uh, so just imagine it kind of like a stair where you have... Casino Town, Castle Hill, the Monastery, and then the mountains behind it. The U.S. 34th Division finishes its uh, two weeks in the mountains, having accomplished some of the finest and hardest fighting uh, feats of arms in the whole war, according to some historians. At a terrible cost, though, 2,200 casualties, some 80% of that U.S. 34th Division is is made into, uh, or is casual deed. So fierce had the 34th fought that Sanger und Ederlein had, quote, mustered all the weight of my authority to request that the Battle of Casino should be broken off and that we should occupy a quite new line, a position in fact north of the Anzio Bridgehead, end quote. Uh, so obviously, already the Germans are very antsy. You've got Kessel Ring pulling out the uh, Panzer Group, uh, the two uh, Panzer Groups out of of, of Rome. You've got of Und Etterlein requesting that the battle at Casino be called off. Um, but somehow they hold, and Kesselring refuses, and Ut Etterlein figures out how to stop the bleeding. But it's been a close call, and the Allies in the first battle pretty much could have had a success. They could have had a win had they been able to time any of this fighting properly, had they been able to counterattack with any bit of the efficiency of the Germans, um, but it just wasn't meant to be. The Americans uh, were the 34th War. The Americans are replaced by the indomitable and always feisty, ready-to-fight New Zealanders, the Kiwis, uh, and also the... Uh, that's the 2nd New Zealand Division and the 4th Indian Division, and they are brought over from Monty's 8th Army so that they can uh, help in, in pushing for Monte Cassino. Mark Clark deserves some blame for this haphazard uh, leadership during the battle, and many times over and over in Monte Cassino we see uh, a moment where a someone with a little bit of foresight would have realized there's got to be a way to have reserves ready to go. Um, but it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. It's easy to see failure and see mistakes being made with the uh, the scope and depth of hindsight. So I'm not going to lean too hard into him. Uh, he was inexperienced. He was a jealous man. He was egotistical, conceited, and all those terrible things. Uh, but he was also facing some of the finest troops in the German army. And even though it's not, you know, Kesselring's not up there with Rommel or Guderian, uh, he's definitely considered one of the great field marshals of, of Hitler's Germany. And Sanger himself is a brilliant defensive mind. So Mark Clark was in a tough spot, much like the rest of the Allied army in Italy. Battle number two of the Monte Cassino campaign 
is uh, Operation Avenger, and it was hoped that this would be the uh, the culminating moment of the battle. The Anzio landing had gone forward. Uh, Anzio is happening, and what we have in the interview I did with Matthew Parker, you have an in, a great quote he, by him. He said that uh, the the quote the Anzio tail was wagging the casino dog. End quote. So really, what you've got is Anzio starts out as a military operation made to help the uh, Allied armies in front of the Gustav line. Um, And the hope is that at Monte Cassino, they will be uh, able to push through now that Anzio is distracting the Germans. What's actually happened is now the Anzio landing is happening. It's gone forward and they're under severe amounts of pressure from the German armies in front of them. And to try and draw some of the attention away from the landings at Anzio, the men in front of Monte Cassino are now being forced to fight. So Operation Avenger is basically designed to uh, create a distraction on a massive scale for the Anzio landings and hopefully also maybe prod and, and poke its way through that Gustav line. The 4th Indian Division is sent into the mountains to try and again step down and from behind on the monastery, from the mountains right behind the monastery. Again, the planning and the preparation is fairly atrocious. Uh, There's really no thought that goes into supplying them, uh, partially from a lack of diligence, but at some level uh, likely from a a lack of caring about um, brown or colonial troops. Um, the understanding being that they'll figure it out on their own, that we don't need to waste uh, supplies and whatnot on them. The Indian supplies are forced to move by mule or manpower, so you've got men carrying things, uh, you've got mules carrying things along these thin trails that are barely meant for travel under uh, constant, constant German fire. And it's another nightmare in the making, um, but General Q, uh General Freiburg of the New Zealanders, he tries to take some of the pressure off of the uh, Indians in the mountains and attacks uh, striking along the uh, railway station or hoping to strike towards the railway station just south of Casino Town. The initial successes by by both of Freiburg's attack come as somewhat of a surprise. He had initially put his chances of, uh, of success at, at, at meager 50%, and he uh, repeatedly expressed serious concern and reservation about the operation from the very start. One of the reasons that the Second Battle of Monte Cassino is so important is because it sees the, uh, the momentous occasion of the destruction of the monastery. Uh, February 14th, front pages in the news around the world over and over uh, talk of the one of the most iconic moments of, of World War II. Newsweek magazine wrote, quote, the most widely advertised bombing in history, end quote. Uh, so no, there was no secretive aspect to the bombing of the, the monastery, and probably there's a number of reasons for that. First off, it's likely that it wasn't going to be capable of Um, It was just such an obvious target that it's unlikely that a secret would have held. There's also the aspect that uh, probably a lot of the generals and the higher-ups in Allied Command wanted the world to see what they were about to do to the monastery. Uh, Maybe not so much because of the cultural loss, but more so to show the Soviets and maybe the Germans and Japanese themselves 
what the power of the United States Air Force and the Allied Air Force could achieve. Uh, press and officers on, and soldiers on both sides basically came to watch and uh, and look on. Uh, it became kind of a, a sideshow within the sideshow of the Italian campaign. Uh, Parker, Matthew Parker writes of, uh, well, he quotes Ike Eisenhower on military necessity in his book, quote, Today we are fighting in a country which has contributed a great deal to our cultural inheritance, a country rich in monuments which by their creation helped and now in their old age illustrate the growth of the civilization which is ours. We are bound to respect those monuments so far as war allows. If we have to choose between destroying a famous building and sacrificing our own men, then our own, then our own men's lives count infinitely more and the building must go. Nothing can stand against the argument of military necessity, end quote. So there you have it. In the Allied view, one life is worth more than hundreds of years of cultural accumulation of science, art, religious understanding, um, architectural beauty. None of that matters if one allied life is going to be lost, uh, which I think is an interesting conversation, and it's clearly one that's been had ever since the Battle of Monte Cassino. The actual orders to blow up the casino or mo the monastery seem to be a little bit of a dog and pony show. You've got nobody really wanting to take uh, take the bulls by the horn here. Mark Clark is essentially he's doing the thing where he refuses to to uh, be the man that gets the backlash. So he forces his CNC Alexander to give him the order, basically saying, "I'll do it, but you've got to order me. I'm not going to do it on my own volition." Uh, the Germans were really went as close to breaking their word. Again, I told you this earlier. They 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 went as closer as, or you know, they went up to the very foundation of the monastery without actually entering it. Uh, they tried every last gambit to utilize that position without breaking the rules. Uh, and in one flyover by Allied uh, scouting planes said that they saw, quote, a radio mast, German uniforms hanging on clotheslines in the Abbey courtyard, and a machine gun emplacement 50 yards from the Abbey walls, none of which were verified or truly concrete. But, uh, but to some, it proved enough, to that, uh, enough information, enough evidence that, um, that it had to be blown up, although one dissenter said of the Allied airplanes, uh, the scouts, that, quote, they've been looking so long they're seeing things, end quote. Um, it, it becomes a matter of, of, you know, personal taste, I guess, of what you think is, is value. Um, I personally believe that the bombing was going to happen, the destruction of the monastery was going to happen by either side at some point, so... Uh, I don't think I think it's a bit of a moot point, but people get pretty heated on either end. Uh, the fear of the monastery by the soldiers on the Allied side is is interesting. It's palpable. It's almost uh, Tolkien esque, where you have this watching, you know, all seeing eye that's just dominating every movement of their lives, and it's really consuming their existence to a certain degree. 
Matt Parker has a great quote in his book about why it had the the building had to be bombed, why it couldn't just be um, attacked or moved past. He says, "Got General Freiburg saying, quote, uh, the main gate has massive timber branches on a, in a low archway consisting of large stone blocks, 9 to 10 meters long. This gate is the only means of entrance to the monastery. The walls are about 150 feet high, are of solid masonry, and at least 10 feet thick at the base. Monte Cassino is therefore a modern fortress and must be dealt with by modern means. It can only be directly dealt with by applying blockbuster bombs from the air. So that's Freiburg. Uh, basically giving his arguments as to why the attack has to go forward, why the bombing of that position is necessary, uh, and why it's it's something to consider that this was bound to happen. Uh, New Zealand officer Kippenberger wrote after the war, or wrote after the war, quote, opinion at New Zealand Corps headquarters as to whether the Abbey was occupied was divided. Personally, I thought the point immaterial. If not occupied today, it might be tomorrow, and it did not appear that it would be difficult for the enemy to bring reserves into it during the progress of an attack, or for troops to take shelter there if driven from positions outside. It was impossible to ask troops to storm a hill surmounted by an intact building such as this, capable of sheltering several hundred infantry in perfect security from shellfire and ready at the critical moment to emerge and counterattack. So again, I think it was a moot point the the monastery was going to go at some point. Um, and 9.45, Tuesday, February 15th, that was the moment that the monastery went. BBC war co- correspondent Christopher Buckley broadcast at Casino, and he said of the Allied aircraft attacking the monastery, quote, flew in perfect formation with that arrogant dignity which distinguishes bomber aircraft. As they passed over the crest of Monastery Hill, small jets of flame and spatters of black earth leapt into the air from the summit. Just before two o'clock, a formation of Mitchells passed over. A moment later, a bright flame, such as a giant might have produced by striking titanic matches on the mountainside, spurted swiftly upwards. For nearly five minutes, it hung around the building, thinning gradually upwards into strange, evil-looking arabesque. Then the column paled and melted. The abbey became visible again. Its whole outline had changed. The west wall had totally collapsed, and the whole side of the building along a length of about a hundred yards had simply caved in. It lay open to the attackers. End quote. So what you had seen was 142 B-17 flying fortresses dropping 253 tons of high explosives and incendiary bombs. And then a second wave of 47 twin-engine Mitchells, which Buckley is talking about there, and 40 twin-engine marauders dropping 100 tons of bombs, all followed by a massive artillery bombardment that the New York Times, quote, wrote, uh, wrote, quote, worst aerial and artillery onslaught ever directed against a single building. But of this huge bombardment and attack, little of it is of actual use. And, and really, no immediate onslaught was prepared to take the position. Again, this timing issue. So you have the, the building is destroyed. It's, it's weakened at the knees. The position is ready to be taken. The Germans around it had just been pelted with bombs and artillery for hours and hours. And, and yet there's no follow-up attack, which is just a bizarre, bizarre mis, 
uh, misreading of, of how to do this. It's a terrible failure on the part of the, the commanding generals in, in charge. Uh, the idea that you would bomb this and not have some men ready to run up and take the position is just hugely, hugely uh, inexcusable. I think one of the two things that I want to to get across about the destruction of the um, monastery, though, are the the various point of views. So Martha Gellhorn, the veteran war correspondent, she's watching this, and 30 years later she wrote, quote, I remember the actual bombing of Monte Cassino. I watched it sitting on a stone wall or the stone side of a bridge and saw the planes come and drop their loads and saw the monastery turning into a muddle of dust and heard the big bangs and was absolutely delighted and cheered like all the other fools. She's clearly, uh, on, in hindsight, thought about the destruction of the monastery and the loss uh, to mankind, to humanity. And then you also have Tony, young Tony Potasio, uh, and he wrote, or he writes that, uh, quote, nothing was sacred anymore, and the world had truly become a darkened place, end quote. So even at the moment of victory here, or the moment of destruction of this this monastery, there are people on the ground who uh, recognized it for what it was, a massive loss, a massive waste. Um, one of the Vatican... Uh, Secretary of State, he calls it a, quote, colossal blunder, a piece of gross stupidity, end quote. The tale of Don Martino, uh, he's the abbot, and his story is truly depressing. Uh, worth looking into, though, he, um, he's able to survive and eventually is brought to Rome and given some uh, some help by a German officer, but then the SS comes in and forces him to uh, give a speech about denouncing the Allies. And it, it's a truly, truly horrifying little story um, on its own. And he's this old man who really, there should be a book or a movie about it because it's a fascinating story. Uh, one of the unintended side effects of the destruction of the monastery is that the new mess of rubble and destruction proves to be a field day for German para-defenders, uh, paratroopers who are defending this location, because now they, are, they occupy the site. They don't have to worry about uh, offending the Vatican or Catholics worldwide. And Kesselring spares Rome uh, and Venice because of, of the withering PR issues faced by the Allies. So you have the uh, paratroopers, German paratroopers, creating incredibly hard defensive structures out of this mess of rubble and former monastery. And the overall German field commander, Kesselring, goes ahead and spares major Italian cities when he eventually has to retreat, uh, simply because he wants to avoid what the Allies are going through, which is getting lambasted for uh, being responsible for this historical death and destruction. The night following the bombing, the 1st Battalion Royal Sussex Regiment, part of the Indian 4th, they hit a point uh, 593 on Snake's Head Ridge, taking 50% casualties. That very next night, the Sussex was reordered or ordered again to uh, hit a point called 575, which uh, they were not able to get artillery support because it would have cost more or caused more damage than help due to the angle and the terrain. Uh, and after brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat, the regiment has 
lost 12 of 15 officers and 162 of 313 men, essentially another 50%. So back-to-back nights, they lose 50% each time. Uh, February 17th saw an attack by the Gurkhas and Rajputana rifles on Snake's Head Ridge and the slopes of the monastery itself across horrific terrain that it was hoped the mountain Gurkhas would be able to handle. Gurkhas are some of the most interesting, fascinating, bravest soldiers in the history of warfare, uh, incredibly hardy, incredibly intelligent, uh, and just loyal as, as any warrior that's ever lived. And it was hoped that these Gurkhas would be able to get into these mountainous, rabbly, craggy spots and, and work their magic. And they did in many cases, uh, but it was, it was tough going. Again, terrible losses were sustained. No gain uh, or no noticeable gain was, uh, was the end result, which again, we're talking a mirror of the First World War. The Rajputanas lost 196 men and officers, and the Gurkhas lost well over 230 men, which led to the calling off of further attacks on uh, Monastery Hill itself. Meanwhile, the second strike of Kiwis and Maori made progress, but was ultimately not able to hold uh, their ground across the Rapido once an armored counterattack was launched. So again, you have a situation where you've got men, allied soldiers, crossing a river, creating a foothold, and then no armor following them up, and a crushing German counter-strike. The heat generated by these attacks led to a frank conversation between Kesselring and his officers as to whether or not they could hold the Gustav line. Kesselring convinces them to give it one more shot. And so then the third battle of Monte Cassino is in the offing. The previous battles had shown that with the weather still wintry, breakouts on either end would be fairly difficult and unlikely. Fording rivers was going to be too costly. Uh, The mountain attacks proved pointless, uh, but they were gaining some ground, and the Leary Valley would be open and the road to Rome secured if some combination of of ground attack towards Casino Town and the mountain range area would uh, end up being successful. None of the Allied commanders felt particularly confident in the plan, uh, but an attempt had to be made to secure Casino Town and try and hit the monastery again from the rear. Casino Town was uh, really just obliterated by a combination of bombing and uh, artillery. The one Allied officer said, quote, we have fumigated Casino, end quote. The German experience in the town of Casino was just devastating as these bombs are just absolutely tearing the city apart. There's an image of what Casino looked like before and after the bombing, and it's, it's lunar. It's uh, World War I-esque. It's, um, um, it's almost hard to believe that it was at one point a large population center of 20,000 people. Um, there, three days of bombing, it was decided would be enough to obliterate the enemy positions at Casino, but weather held that back for quite a bit of time, uh, 21 days, I believe. And on the 15th of March, over after uh, 750 tons of 1,000-pound bombs hit the town, and then for three straight hours, the bombing and artillery just obliterate the town. The New Zealanders start to advance on Casino Town behind a creeping barrage, 
fired by some 700-plus artillery pieces. Once again, we see that ghost of World War I playing at Casino. As with any bombing and shelling during the war, accuracy was limited in this case, only about 50% of the, the rounds making the target area. But the two massive displays of firepower were enough to kill half of the 300 German paratroopers in the town. Uh, the town was so uh, insane. It was such a, it's a such a nightmare defensive position to hold that the Germans, uh, German leadership had decided that any paratrooper that spent two weeks fighting in casino would automatically win the Iron Cross. Shaken and exhausted from the onslaught, the defenders were somehow able to keep uh, recover from the bombing as quickly as they did. And the, uh, positions that they manned were, were held by the time the New Zealand forces arrived, they recognized that the bombing had destroyed the town, but that the defenders were still uh, ready to ready for fight. Um, the following assault was vicious and desperate on the part of the Germans, but the New Zealanders were forced to slow down. Um, craters held up armor. German defenses were expertly organized and positioned. Uh, rain started falling, and it would fill the shell holes and slow down resupply uh, and also killed field radios and communications. Again, we see a little bit of that World War I stuff with the shell holes filling up. Without the ability to communicate back or to bring up men and supplies, the Allies halted but soon began a long, slow slog through the town of Casino where they're making... Uh, they're trying to make their way out of this bottleneck created by German uh, defensive positions in the town, and they eventually do. They eventually work their way through Casino Town and make it to the train station. Uh, the the New Zealanders also, in the process, take Castle Hill early in the battle and and held it under constant but low-level fighting. So it's always being attacked by Germans, and it's some of the most incredible fighting of the entire battle. And there's a great quote from Parker's book that uh, we'll get to in a minute that describes some of it. On March 19th, the Allied plan was for the 20th Armored Regiment to blast into Casino Town and right up to the monastery, delivering a knockout punch. This would have worked had it been even able to get off the ground. But instead, they are faced by the Green Devils of Casino, the elite of the elite, uh, whose training is this incredible, difficult saga of, of pushing men to the very brink. These are the paratroopers of the German military. They, are, they had proved their use in Belgium. Uh, they had been extremely impressive in fighting in Crete. But Hitler had realized that they were very... very um, they were prone to uh, die. They were very uh, fragile in terms of their delivery system. So the whole uh, parachuting process was very dangerous. And so he had gotten a little gun shy in using them and he keeps them to himself. Uh, at one point, General Alexander, the CNC of the Allies, uh, wrote that they were the, the best soldiers in the world, that they were the finest fighting soldiers in the world. And that's why it was so hard for the Allies to make ground on them. The German defenders in Casino Town suffered massive, massive casualties, most units well over 60% in terms of casualties. The 
casino part of this battle is just horrific. Uh, in, in most of the bodies in the in the casino town area are in an advanced state of de- decomposition. Uh, you've got flies feasting. You've got rats. Uh, other animals, dogs, everything just ripping apart, shredding bodies, shredding body parts. Uh, it just becomes a real hellhole. It's it's like a miniature version of Stalingrad, where the Germans are uh, just struggling to hold on, and the Allies are uh, pushing everything forward, trying to make these minor gains. You know, we're talking brick by brick through the town. The whole plan of the Canadian Armored Regiment was uh, scuttled by a surprise counterattack by the German 1st Parachute Division, um, or Paratroop Division. It's a ferocious counterattack by the Germans, and they are able to isolate the Allied armor so effectively uh, that without any infantry support, each tank, each armored unit is knocked out by the Germans by mid-afternoon. On March 19th, quote, nothing less than the last phase of a medieval siege. The only difference being the machine guns were substituted for crossbows and grenades for boiling pitch, end quote. That is the battle for the castle on Castle Hill. Uh, you have to imagine exactly what it sounds like, a, a medieval castle full with the tiny slitted windows and the battlements and everything. And instead of, of men in armor and knights and horses and all that, you've got, uh, you've got Nazis and rifles and grenades and potato mashers being thrown over the parapets and uh, just an incredible sight. And again, another situation where time and time again, I'm reading about Casino here, I've wondered, why isn't this a movie? Why isn't this a show or something? Um, it would have made an interesting, uh, I would love to just see it in, uh, in color. The fighting in Casino Town is still deadly, and although the New Zealand forces are making their way through, it's become harder and harder for them to, um, to really gain much. They're, they're making these gains, they're calculating them not in miles, not in blocks, but in houses and yards, and that kind of fighting is just... Uh, it's not what the Allies are good at. The Allies are good at utilizing their size and strength, so broad, wide, open strikes, uh, using massive formations of infantry and armor, places where they can uh, take in their, you know, their air force, their bombers, and their artillery supremacy and use that um, to their benefit. The Germans are the ones who are going to benefit from fighting these small, tiny little narrow alley fights. As the town fills, though, with Allied infantry, it gives the German infiltrators less and less uh, safe space for them to uh, strengthen their defenses. It gives them less uh, mobility. They're less able to, uh, to remain in the city. And eventually, uh, both the New Zealand and Indian forces are able to uh, kind of capture most of their objectives, but... By the 23rd of March, they're extremely, extremely thin. Uh, casualty numbers just skyrocketing across. And, and also the men are just bone-weary. They're incapable of continuing to fight. Uh, the end of the sec- uh, third battle of Monte Cassino, the Indian division has lost 3,000 men and the New Zealanders 1,600. Uh, the Germans lost more, and uh, by March 23rd, it was noted that most of the front line battalions of the German army on in Casino 
had left only uh, somewhere between 40 and 120 men or active men able to fight. Uh, one German officer recalled of the third battle as, quote, one of the most perplexing operations of the war, end quote. He seems to have believed that the Allies could have won easily had they done anything uh, like backing up these uh, successful attacks, had they been able to bring in reserves, um, but it just doesn't seem to have happened. And in the fourth and final battle of Monte Cassino, Commander-in-Chief Alexander is uh, supposed to hold, again, as many Axis forces as possible while the Normandy operation gets underway. Finally, he's able to recognize uh, that this is going to be more successful if he breaks out of this Gustav line. Um, we are able to see him kind of waiting now. He, he bides his time, lets the spring come into full effect, and, and he wants to end the slaughter at Casino. He plans this. this uh, he plans to bring the British Eighth Army over to the spine of Italy and use it in conjunction with Clark's Fifth Army to really cut open a hole in that Gustav line and then break out moving north. And if they can do that, he thinks that the Germans will be forced to pull more men down into the Italian campaign, Italian theater, um, which will actually achieve his objective a little bit more widely than if he just held the Gustav line and tied up German units there. Uh, the two armies, the 5th and the 8th, of the Allies are going to kind of try and clear the 20-mile uh, front from Casino to the sea. So a lot like the first battle of Monte Cassino, it's this massive front. Uh, but now instead of just a ragtag group of, of units that were at the end of their line in terms of uh, energy, as it was in the first battle, as they had already tried to move up the boot of Italy, this is this huge, massive formations of armor and men that the Allies are good at using. They've been rested. They've been particularly held aside just for this massive uh, push. And this is known as Operation Diadem. Using the Second Corps, uh, the Americans would take the coastal route up seven, which we talked about earlier. The British would flood the Leary Valley in the center with armor and men. And then the Polish forces would try to succeed where the New Zealanders and Indians had failed. They would go through that mountain pass and try and come at Casino from behind and above, pinching the Germans out as the Poles and Brits would hopefully link up in the Leary Valley. For the first time in the battle, the plan actually included two things, another layer and a reserve. The secondary layer was that once the Allied forces broke through, the U.S. forces at Anzio would bust out and slam into the fleeing Germans heading right into their uh, path. And then the reserve was the Canadian First Corps, which was held back to support anybody that was floundering or any units that seemed to be breaking or bolster and reinforce success. So the whole plan went into motion in strict secrecy, uh, and this is where I also think this is fascinating about Monte Cassino. You see it at D-Day, but the troop movements alone took months uh, moving from one side of the uh, Apennine Mountains to the other because they could only be moved in small units and at night, leaving no trace. In one of the most successful and thorough deceptions of the war, Allied forces performed fake landings, sent fake radio calls, and set up face, false signposts and depots, all to convince the Germans that a landing behind the Gustav line was coming. 
Uh, armor units were sent at night and left behind dummy versions of, the, of themselves to convince the German uh, spotters that nothing was happening. So through so thorough was this job that by the second day of the final battle, Kessel Ring believed he faced six Allied divisions to his four, um, uh, but the Allies actually had 13 divisions in front of him, and they were all on the move. On May 11th, 1,600 guns, 2,000 tanks, 3,000 aircraft along 20 miles. That's 45 guns, 57 tanks, and 85 planes for every 1,000 yards uh, was ready to roll. The bombardment that preceded the attack was incredible. It was huge. For the time, it was one of the most impressive of the war. The massive barrage began at 2,300, and by daylight, the whole Allied line was on the move. The Americans were stopped at first, but the French Expeditionary Corps quickly reached its objectives in the center left of the line and were soon trying to reach out towards the British. Uh, The Gargliano was crossed by the British under heavy, heavy fire, but with the completion of a bridge and the crossing of the river by Canadian armor, the thing that they weren't able to do in that first battle and in the second one, uh, by bringing that armor up, the bridgehead was able to be held against German counterattacks, finally. Whereas in the first and second battle, the Allies across the river, again, had no armor, this, this new aspect of the battle really proves uh, the, that, that that was a huge issue in the, the first couple battles, and it really does lead to the overall victory. On the right wing, the attack by the Poles, uh, they essentially traded peak for peak with the Germans. So it was fierce, it was bloody fighting, each side winning and losing peaks over and over, Um, objectives trading back and forth, but eventually the Poles were kind of fought to a standstill. Uh, Attack, counterattack was kind of the name of the game. Each side, again, winning and losing objectives, and lightning speed counterattacks by the Germans really uh, took a toll. By the third day, the Poles had lost almost 300 officers and 3,500 men to a German parachute regiment of just 800 men. Uh, one of the witnesses of the fighting called it a, quote, mini Verdun. Again, one of those echoes of World War I there. By May 12th, the Germans delivered a flurry of counterattacks along the, the entire front from the coast to the mountains, but none of them held, and on the 13th, the pressure began to really tell for the Germans. The German right facing the U.S. Fifth Army started to give way, and the French Expeditionary Corps was able to advance to a position that overlooked the Leary Valley, giving them oversight of the British now fighting the last-ditch attacks by Kesselring. Kesselring, at this point, knew what was coming and was desperately trying to buy time as he moved what many could back eight miles to his next defensive position, known as the Hitler Line, soon to be changed to the Sanger Line. May 17th saw the Poles launch a second and eventually final attack on the monastery. Brutal mortar and artillery fire from German positions led to nasty, horrific hand-to-hand fighting as the Poles made the slow and deadly way up the the road into the rubble of the former monastery. May 18th, on the morning of that day, there was a tattered white flag that went up over the monastery the Germans had left in the night, leaving just 30 wounded behind. 9.50, the 12th Podolowski Lancers Regiment insignia was raised over the monastery, signaling the end of the battle for Monte Cassino. Quote, after all that fighting, all those months, the monastery was captured without a shot being fired. End quote. 
Uh, the polls really get screwed in this. Uh, they were hoping that they, by fighting for the Allies, it, their homeland of Poland would be secured against the communists. Uh, it, they were promised over and over and over, and they just get screwed. Um, and hopefully, if you do read the book by Matt Parker or you do any more research into this battle, um, it's worth noting that the Poles fought incredibly hard and were um, were extremely, extremely helpful in the whole the entire battle and winning. Um, all right, so casualties and aftermath. The Hitler line soon to be renamed. The Sanger, like I said, it fell. Uh, it because it was changed to the Sanger line so that Hitler wouldn't be tied to any failure and the Fuhrer's name was not stained. Uh, and this was smart because it did indeed fall on the 25th of May. The road to Rome was open and the city was spared by Kesselring and fell into Allied hands on June 4th, just days before the Normandy invasions. At Anzio, the Allies did break out, and as the German defenses crumbled, the whole Allied line surged north. There was a chance, this is again one of those reasons why Mark Clark gets uh, crapped on considerably, is that there was a moment where the Anzio army, much like was originally planned, was racing out into central Italy, and the Germans were in a position where they were about to be stopped by the Anzio army and then encircled by the following pursuing Allied army from the south. Um, but at the last minute, Mark Clark ordered the Anzio forces to change direction and head north, hoping to race them up to uh, Rome, get to Rome before the British. It was clearly a bit of, uh, you know, PR uh, play here where Mark Clark wanted to get to Rome and be the general in, in charge of taking the city of Rome instead of allowing any British to be able to do that. Um, that missed opportunity definitely still will uh, always haunt his career. Um, at the end of its retreat, the Germans had been forced all the way north of Florence to another super defensive position at the Gothic line. But by then, the war was being won elsewhere, and there was no need to break this last Italian front, uh, no need to waste Allied lives on it. As much as Churchill might have wanted to attack north into Austria. Uh, I know that Churchill was big on trying to get to some of those central and eastern European cities before the communists got there, but it was decided that the Gothic line was too strong. The forces were needed elsewhere in Normandy and the Pacific to, uh, to really push too hard there. The Allies in all suffered 55,000 uh, casualties trying to take Monte Cassino and if you add in the Anzio casualties, that number balloons over 100,000, uh, maybe even more. And you're talking that compared to German losses of about 20,000, maybe a tick more. It's clear, uh, it, it clearly puts on display the advantage of defense and the incredibly uh, strong fighting abilities of the German soldiers. They're taking about uh, almost two to one for every casualty that they take, they take, uh, they inflict two. Uh, the monastery was obviously obliterated, but the town of Casino was raised to the ground as well. And, and again, you've got to check out that picture I was telling you about. Go to Matthew Parker's website. Um, it's in the show notes. It will, he's got maps, he's got pictures, and I've also got them. Um, if you want, ask me and I'll, I'll send them along. 
2,000 of the town's population were killed, and an uncounted, untold amount of Italian peasantry were killed, wounded, assaulted, raped, and harassed by both sides throughout the entire battle. It's important to not uh, forget that the peasantry, the people, were the ones who were um, victimized the most. In fact, a kind of shady little sub-story of Monte Cassino is the uh, the Moroccanite um, episode where some of the North African um, French expeditionary force, Moroccan force, uh, Tunisian force, they, it seems as though they were responsible for the rape of many women, children, and men after the success of... Uh, the the Monte Cassino campaign. It seems that way. Um, there are, I mean, Moroccanite is in Italian. Literally, it translates to someone being Moroccaned, uh, which is the act of being raped by a African force uh, or soldier. So Matthew Parker is very delicate with the way he handles it. He does a great job of covering this. Um, it seems as though every Italian peasant in this area had a story about it. Um, and it's unlikely that that comes from nowhere. However, it was, uh, I believe the quote from Parker in his book is that not one interview that he had, um, was a first person witness. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that this is maybe something of a, uh, I mean, historically we've seen, Black soldiers get labeled as these vicious rapists. Now, again, it's possible and likely that this did happen, but it probably didn't happen at any greater rate than the rape uh, of peasants by white soldiers. Um, some of the lasting thoughts, again, the mistakes of the battle are are much like, and I, I don't want it to be a... Uh, subversion of the, the the great you know the the battle itself, but the idea of someone cooking and doing the getting the timing all wrong, uh, it just seems like by the fourth battle this was eventually figured out and ironed out, and maybe that's what it takes. Maybe sometimes it takes a lot of um, uh, failure to understand how to fight better. The 4th Indian Division wrote of one engagement but could stand, uh, but this could essentially stand in his byline for the whole battle. Quote, once again, one fist struck while the other arm hung idle, end quote. The timing here, that's, that's, I just keep driving home. Major General Tucker of the 4th Indian Division said, quote, these battles, in fact, were military sins, no less, end quote. And the great JFC Fuller, or I like him, but I know some people aren't huge fans, was not a fan of the campaign either. He said, quote, a campaign which, for lack of strategic sense and tactical imagination, is unique in military history. Uh, another uh, person had said, quote, it was a hollow victory that in many ways was inevitable as the Allied buildup and Axis dwindle were irreversible at this point in the war. So no matter what was going to happen, it doesn't seem like Monte Cassino necessarily had to be fought. Um, the Allies weren't going to suddenly stop building up and, and creating this massive force. Um, one of the things Parker's book really definitely uh, drives home, and, and I encourage you to go and look it up, 
Uh, the cemeteries that were created for the Allied soldiers are impressive, unbelievable. Um, the the Polish cemetery is massive, uh, and it's become a, a lasting symbol uh, for the Polish people of their sacrifice in the Second World War and their military um, prowess and, and abilities in that war. All right, that is the Battle of Monte Cassino. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. I know it's a long, uh, long episode, but it took a long time to be put together. Uh, and so I, uh, I appreciate you waiting. I, I encourage you to go and listen to Matthew Parker's interview with me. Uh, I think it came out pretty good. It seemed like people enjoyed it and I had a blast doing it. Matt's a great guy. Uh, he was kind enough to give me that time. And, uh, and I encourage you if you want to learn more about Monte Cassino and you want to, uh, try and, and figure out or get a better visual picture of what's going on there go to his website check out the images and the maps go buy the book uh, he, he sells it on the website but it's also on Amazon check out the social media accounts again Instagram Facebook and Twitter you can see what we're up to there um, we'll be doing a couple of different things I just watched that movie Midway so I'm going to live stream and chat with you guys about that uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, please. That really does help. Uh, again, check out Patreon. Next up, we have Oliver Cromwell, Regicide and Revolution and the Battle of Nazby. <laughs>